welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning and uh, welcome to Gateway. We're thrilled that you're here. Um, If you're new or you've been away on holiday, we've begun a short series um, that coincides with the 500th anniversary of the event in history that we know as the Reformation. Actually, on the 31st of October, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, and it was that event that became the spark that lit the forest fire that was to become the Reformation. And we, um, in considering you know, our preaching schedule, thought it would be worthwhile just taking a few messages to think about this particular event and its implications, its ongoing legacy for, um, for the church and for the world. So last week in the introductory message of uh, the Reformation, I basically gave you more of a history lesson than a Bible teaching. Um, and I mentioned that there were uh, four primal or key questions really that the answers to which set off this theological earthquake that registered 10 on the Richter scale, both in terms of not just church history, but also world history. And the four questions, the answers to which started the Reformation were, where does final religious authority lie? How is a person saved or made right with God? How is a person justified by God? What is the nature of the church? And what is the essence of the Christian life? Those four questions, uh, the response to those questions from Luther and his fellow reformers, um, really, as I say, started this incredible movement called the Reformation. Their answers to those four questions were revolutionary at the time in both their freshness and their power. And their answers to those questions came in the form of what we now refer to as the five solas. They didn't talk about the solas in their time. It's something that we've kind of imposed on uh, on those historical events, but they're fairly true to the events. And the five solas are sola scriptura, by which they meant God's word alone, Sola fide, which is by faith alone. Sola gratia, which is by grace alone. Sola Christus, which is through Christ alone. And sola Dio gloria, for God's glory alone. And those five solas are the legacy in some ways of what we call the Reformation. Now in this series, I plan to look very briefly at those five solas. Um, I'm, I'm doing three messages on those, so five into three obviously don't go, so I'll be combining uh, them and talking more about some than others, and then we want to do one message on the legacy of the Reformation, both positive and negative. Uh, if you've done any study or you know anything about the Reformation, you'll, you'll know that probably the central cry, the, the one cry that was perhaps louder and to the fore more than any of the others was sola fide, the just shall live by faith. It was that light that broke on Martin Luther's soul that really opened up the, the Reformation. So his understanding was that people are made right with God by faith alone. 
And of course, I have no, absolutely no dispute with that, except to say that while that was probably two to four in terms of these five solars, you can't really have one without the other. They are all interrelated. And actually, if I had to point to a starting point, rather than sola fide, I would probably say sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone, as, as being the bedrock principle of the Reformation. Because it was from the scriptures that these other solas, the revelation of the other solas, by faith, by grace, by Christ alone, uh, for God's glory alone, of course, they emerged out of um, Luther and his fellow reformers' understanding of the scripture. So the bedrock of the Reformation was the affirmation that the Bible alone is the final ultimate authority for Christian life and doctrine. And it was that commitment to the ultimate authority of the scriptures that gave the reformers the courage to face and challenge the might of the medieval church. Sola Scriptura, of course, means that only the scriptures, because they are inspired, uh, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, they are God-breathed, only the scriptures is sufficient for our final, ultimate basis of authority. Now, it's really important to understand that the reformers weren't anti-authority. They did not reject other forms or sources of authority. What they were very careful to say was that the scripture was the primary, the supreme, the final authority. So they actually recognized church tradition. They acknowledged church officials. Their claim, however, was that those authorities, the authority of tradition, the authority of um, <clears throat> church officials, were subject to the final court of authority, which was the scripture. And what the reformers did was they made a distinction between what they called the ministerial role of the lesser authorities and the magisterial role played by the scriptures. So ministerial, of course, you know, that comes from a word that basically means a servant, all right? A minister, a servant. So these other authorities, the authority of tradition, the authority of church um, uh, officials, functioned in a ministerial or servant role. The magisterial role, the role of the ruler, is played by the scriptures. So other authorities then were valid and were to be followed in as much as they were aligned with and subject to the scriptures. Now, that may not seem an earth-shaking idea to you and I, but the reason it's not earth-shaking to you and I actually is the legacy of the Reformation. That thought was, in fact, a revolutionary thought, literally so in that time. The position of the medieval church didn't agree with what, what Luther and his fellow reformers said. The position of the medieval church was that scripture was not sufficient in and of itself, nor was it the sole infallible authority and source of divine revelation. The teaching of the church was that tradition was not subordinate to the scripture, but was equally infallible and also a source of revelation, equally inerrant in terms of its authority. So the medieval church had raised tradition to the level of, in fact, beyond the scriptures. 
A Dominican theologian, Sylvester uh, Priorius, was appointed by Leo, uh, Pope Leo X to respond to Luther's claims on this issue. And he wrote, whoever does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the pontiff of Rome as the infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. So this theologian was putting the Pope's authority and the tradition of the church above the scriptures and saying that the scriptures too draw their strength and authority from that position. Now, I don't want to in any way come across as as anti-anybody, actually, but I'm, I am definitely not anti-Catholic. Most of you know I came from a Catholic background, and I know Catholics who absolutely love the Lord, and quite frankly, the devotion of many of them would put m many of us Protestants to shame. So I, I'm not, you know, please don't understand me as being on some kind of polemic against Catholicism, I'm not. However, I do have to say that that position remains the Catholic position even today. Vatican II, which was um, conferred in the 1960s, 1962 through 1965, states the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truth from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Goes on in another place to say the task of authentically interpreting the word of God has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. So the church's interpretation of the scriptures is, is of course the valid one. The Catholic Church argued that the scriptures are often unclear and sometimes difficult to understand and therefore believers everywhere must look to and depend on the infallible interpretation of the church. And for that reason, at least when I attended the Catholic Church, we were not necessarily encouraged to read the Bible ourselves. Um, I'll never forget coming into the whole charismatic phenomenon and being touched by the Lord and, and, and developing a great hunger for the Word of God. And I remember on one occasion, myself, my sister, and I think my older brother were all in our lounge and we were all sitting quietly reading our Bible when our next door neighbor who was a Catholic came in and saw these three siblings reading the Bible. She later told us, she didn't tell us at the time, but when she actually came into the same things we'd experienced some months later, she went home and said, I tell you, the devil's got that household. <laughs> Who knows what will come out of their reading of the Bible? And that, that kind of was the attitude, at least then. Um, I'm, I suspect that it's possibly changed in those subsequent 40-odd years, but it was the idea then. The thought was that it's, the scriptures can be dangerous in the hands of people who are not trained. So the reformers then, and most Protestants in our day, would disagree with the Catholic stand. It is not the church that interprets the scriptures, but rather the scriptures that interpret the church. The church understands its nature and its function in the light of the scriptures. In that famous 18-day debate that I referred to last week between Martin Luther and the Catholic theologian Johann van Eck, Luther argued that it was the scripture that had authorities over popes, over church fathers, and over church councils. He argued all of those things and those people had erred, but the scriptures had not. 
as to Rome's claim that the scriptures were confusing and unclear and therefore needed the church's interpretation, Luther argued that through the scriptures, God had spoken in a reasonable way and in a language that actually ordinary people could understand. Now, he wasn't suggesting that there weren't any interpretive difficulties or challenges. All of us understand that there are portions of the scripture that that require um, some degree of expertise or background understanding to actually open up. He wasn't saying that everything is equally clear, but he was saying that the overall salvific message of the scriptures was clear. His argument was um, that the scriptures indicated uh, that, that they were clear enough for children to understand. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, you must think, it says, constantly about these commandments that I'm giving you today. You must teach them to your children. Talk to them. Talk about them when you are at home or out for a work, walk or at bedtime or the first thing in the morning. So these passages indicate that the Word of God is so clear that in fact parents can teach them and talk to them, uh, talk to them with regard to their children. God's, God's word is not entrusted to academics, but to, to all. And it was to be the topic of everyday public conversation. Now, as I say, obviously we shouldn't wrongly assume that every passage in scripture is equally clear. We acknowledge that there are some hard passages. Scripture itself actually acknowledges that. Peter says, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, some things that our brother Paul writes are difficult to understand. And then he goes on and says, and irresponsible people who don't know what they're talking about twist them every which way. So the scripture actually acknowledges of itself there are difficult passages. However, while we admit that there may be some difficult passages, some challenging passages, the overall message of the scriptures is clear. While people might even disagree and have different ideas and interpretations on how salvation actually happens, they don't generally over the fact that it did happen and who did it. I really like what C.S. Lewis says. You know, sometimes when you read different theologians, it's easy to get challenged in terms of how, what does justification mean, how does it work, when does it work, all of these questions. But C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly and he said this, a man can eat his dinner without understanding exactly how food nourishes him. A man can accept what Christ has done without knowing exactly how it works. So we know that we have been saved by the work that Christ has done, even if we don't understand all of the theological implications involved in it. And Luther went on to claim that a simple layman armed with the scripture is to be believed above Pope or council without it. Well, you can imagine the stir that that created. And Luther was summoned to an imperial diet before Charles V, the ruler of what was then referred to as the Holy Roman Empire. And they demanded that he recant, that he repent, that he say he was completely wrong. He famously answered them, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor or right to go against my conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. So he was a man who believed the revelation uh, of the scriptures and that everything, other authorities were in a ministerial role, not a magisterial role.
During the time of the Reformation, the main alternative then to divine revelation and to the authorities of the scripture was church tradition. Now, it's quite different for you and I as postmoderns. Um, for a start, most postmoderns don't resonate with the idea of authority of any kind. We are suspicious of the motivations of people who claim to have authority over us. Interestingly enough, of course, we haven't really done away with the concept of authority. We have simply relocated it. For us, it isn't in tradition or even in scripture. For us, it's found within. The rival to scripture in our time isn't tradition, it's subjective experience. Personal experience, personal preference and, and experience in our day trump everything. So if we're faced with some kind of dilemma or ethical challenge, most postmoderns will determine what they do on the basis of their subjective experiences. So they will say things when we teach from the scriptures and it doesn't seem to resonate with them, they'll say that doesn't seem fair to me or it just doesn't feel right or I can't see the logic in that. In our day, ethical issues are generally decided on the basis of the personal stories that elicit the most sympathy. And by that I mean the media are experts at presenting stories of nice people, ordinary people, people who are good citizens, who are involved in some kind of ethical dilemma in our society, usually some kind of sexual expression that in nearly all other times we would have called deviant, but now they are presented as worthy of our sympathy and worthy of our understanding and tolerance. And Again, I, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't necessarily feel for the dilemma that they find themselves in, that there shouldn't be a degree of sympathy and kindness. Uh, I, I believe that we should treat every single person we encounter as one who has been made in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect. But agreeing with their situation by virtue of the sympathy that it elicits is quite a different matter. We live in a setting where ethical issues are no longer determined by the revelation of scripture or even being rooted in metaphysics, by which I mean the way things obviously are. They have been replaced by a radical subjectivity and individuality, uh, an, an illicit and an eliciting of sympathy. These are good people, they're kind people, they're, they're good citizens. We should say that what they're doing is okay and to hoots with the scriptures. People say, well, you know what, Don, I know the Bible says thus and so, but that just doesn't seem reasonable or fair to me. And in our day, what we have done is we have abrogated God's prerogative to define right and wrong, good and evil, and we have assumed that right for ourselves. Now, either way, whether it's Luther's tradition or our subjective individualism, we have reduced the authority and the revelation of the scriptures and made it subservient to something that is in fact lesser. 
I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel some sympathy, that you shouldn't feel uh, and grapple with this whole idea of fairness. and All of those things are fine. But at the end of the day, we are people of the book. And we believe that the scriptures lay out and are the final court of authority for all of our lives. And you've got to come to terms with whether you can buy into that because that is actually what it means to be a Christian, to follow Christ. It's to come under the authority of his life, his word. You know what? It seems to me that we need another reformation in our time. Then it was tradition. Now it's subjective individualism. The scripture needs to be highlighted. Sola scriptura. That's the foundational bedrock of our lives. And by the way, on which all of the other solas rest. Now, as I say, the sola for which the Reformation is probably best known is sola fide, by faith alone. As I mentioned in my introductory message, Luther in his pre-Reformation days was a deeply troubled individual. He was profoundly aware of his own fallenness and sinfulness, and he recognized that there's this dramatic gulf between himself and the holy God that Scripture revealed, and he didn't know how it could be bridged. The crucial question for him, and actually for all people, it was articulated by Job in probably what is the oldest book in the Bible, and the question is, how can mere mortals get right with God, Job says. If we wanted to bring our case before him, what chance would we have? Not one in a thousand. So this key primal question is, how can I be right with God? How can I have peace with God? How can I have an assurance that we're doing okay together? Well, the Church of Rome at the time answered this question by saying, well, of course, you do need faith, but it has to be supplemented by a commitment to the sacraments, uh, a commitment to church ritual, and, of course, to good works. So they saw justification being made right with God as a process, a process in which people were made righteous by by being involved in these things, by doing these things. So for them, it was faith plus these other things. Now, the immediate question that arises from accepting justification as a process, which involves all these things, is at what point in the process have people done sufficient to be made right with God? How many good works, for example, are needed? How much commitment to the sacraments is required? What level of obedience to church tradition will flick you through that that point of of acceptance? The reality is you can never know. And as a result, assurance of acceptance with God isn't possible in that process idea of being made right with God. We, We live under a question mark. Now, Catholicism unapologetically acknowledges this and goes further to suggest that anyone who claims to have an assurance of salvation is in fact being proud and pretentious. Luther saw, and today we believe, that justification is not a process. It's a divine declaration that takes place in a moment. Justification is a judicial forensic declaration or proclamation about a person's status, about a person's standing before God. It's, it's a law court metaphor. 
It's, a, it's an, the idea is a judge makes a decision concerning a person's status before God, before the court. And in our case, a not guilty verdict is passed down to us on the basis of our faith and trust in Christ's substitutionary work on our behalf. So Luther saw that Christ took our place so that we might take his. This is a free act of God's grace. It did not depend, it does not depend on any works or merits or commitments that we might manage to cobble together. It simply flows out of the generosity and mercy of God's gracious heart as we trust Christ. So Romans chapter 8 verse 33 says, He is the one who has forgiven us and given us right standing with himself. The word is, we're justified. It's a declaration. They are not guilty. Romans 3.24, Yet now God declares us not guilty of offending him if we trust in Jesus Christ, who in his kindness freely takes away our sins. In Romans chapter 5 verse 9, now that we are set right with God by means of this sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. The Bible declares and Luther understood that as we put our trust in Christ, his substitutionary work ensures that I get what he deserved because he took what I deserve. This incredible gift is ours simply as we put our trust in Christ. It is not faith plus some things. It is not faith plus a good ongoing quiet time. All right? As good as that might be, that is not what justifies you before God. Some of you guys, and I can say this because I, I, I know this one real well. Sometimes you go maybe a couple of days you don't have a good quiet time. So the next time you come before God, instead of coming with any sense of boldness at all, it's going to peer around the side of the throne room and make your way into the back row and sit quietly for a while, hoping that God at least at, at first won't notice you. And then maybe he will notice you and think, oh, there you are, and start to feel you know, a little bit forgiving toward you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, three, okay. We, we three will have a, a support group. <laughs> Hello, my name's Don. I struggle with assurance. We, we don't come to Christ or come into the throne room or come into God's presence on the basis of how good our quiet time is, how systematic our Bible reading is, as good as those things are. We come for one reason and one reason only. Christ's blood is sufficient. Remember that hymn we used to sing, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 and 2. Since then it is by faith that we are justified. Let us grasp the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have confidently entered into this new relationship of grace. And here we take our stand in happy certainty of the glorious things that he has for us in the future. We can have assurance not because we're proud and pretentious but simply because we know Christ's act is sufficient. Justification is not to be confused with the process of sanctification that follows. And I think that's the mistake that the Catholic Church makes on this matter. It sees being made right with God as a process. 
Actually, the Bible says we are made right with God and then a process occurs in which God starts to shape us to look like him. In justification, a judicial proclamation is made in a moment of time. We put our faith in Christ and God says, not guilty. Not guilty because Christ took their sin, their guilt. Then the Holy Spirit begins to shape us into Christ-likeness. And that's a lifelong process to which we submit. That is sanctification. Now, Luther understood that although justification was by faith alone, it was not a faith that would remain alone. So true faith will always manifest itself in a new way of living. And that new way of living will demonstrate the authenticity of our faith. That's why sometimes people struggle over the book of James and and Paul's For example, Revelation in Romans. Luther himself struggled over that. He didn't like the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw and he wished it it wasn't in the canon. But it is in the canon. And the reality is they uh, they are not opposite of each other. They are simply different sides of the coin. Because Paul is saying we are justified by faith and then works follow. What James is saying is not that we're justified by works, but that if we've got real faith, there will be works. And if there aren't any works, then you can question the authenticity of the faith. So, so they are not actually opposites. You know, if we, if we can grasp sola fide, by faith alone, we can actually live in a settled confidence in terms of our status before God. We can experience the security and the peace. That passage in Romans, uh, let me just quickly turn back to it. Um, In the happy certainty of the glorious things that he has for us in our future. I, I... I have talked to so many people over the years and and they're struggling in their relationship with God. They don't have that sense of deep acceptance and assurance. And the, the main reason is they say, well, look at, look at my life. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not right. It's, it's broken. It's, it's, it's sinful in places. Well, the process of sanctification, if you will submit to it, will begin to address that. But that's not why you're accepted before God. You are accepted before God on the basis of Jesus Christ's sacrificial act on the cross for you. It is sufficient. It is enough. And when we put our trust in him, we can come with that glorious sense of assurance regarding our present relationship with him and our future with him. It's, it's the joy of the Christian life. And out of that relationship, all kinds of things can happen in the way of works. We are God's people, declared to be right with God, not guilty, in good standing with God because of Christ. And I want to just suggest to you that that does not, or at least it should not, produce arrogant, proud people, but rather it should produce humble, grateful people. We come with great gratitude because we know if we were left to ourselves, there is no way that we would earn good standing with God. We come on the basis of Christ's love and acceptance for us. 
Now, Paul says, and some people, you know, Paul talks about some people who will immediately say, well, well, if that's true, then I can go on living the way I like. You know, if, if, this, if God is actually magnified by the grace that he extends to me, if I carry on sinning, he'll give me more grace and therefore be great more, even more greatly magnified. Well, Paul then goes on and says, God forbid. God forbid, that's not what grace does. People, that, that's, that's trading on grace. And this whole idea, and, and it, it, it's gripped our, our Christian circles uh, in many places, is that, you know, the, the wonderful grace of God allows me to carry living the way I am. And, uh, you know, hey, God just... Shows more grace and more grace and more grace. I'm sorry, but I think that's bent out of shape. That, that misunderstands the grace of God. When we understand the grace of God, we are so impacted by it that we want to change. We don't want to carry on sinning. So, but Don, when you preach like that, surely people will conclude that they can carry on because God's grace will cover all of their sins. Well, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, if people don't ask the question, carry, can I carry on in sin then, then, then you actually haven't preached the gospel. Because there's always that possibility. You can always come to that conclusion. I do want to say to you, it's the wrong conclusion. And Paul outlines that really clearly. Grace impacts us so profoundly, so deeply, that it humbles us. And we decide, you know what? I want to live for him in all of my life, in all of my ways, at every dimension of my personality, my finances, my sexuality, the way I raise my children. All of those things then come under the sphere of that grace and the shaping influence of the Holy Spirit. They're not what earn us favor, they are the result of favor. I'm going to ask if our musicians would come. I suspect that we desperately need a reformation afresh in our day. As I said before, the scriptures no longer are under and subservient to tradition. In our society, they are under and subservient to people's individual interpretation of what they think God should do in the circumstance. And I want to just say to you, you can't live like that. Um, we are, we are underneath the magisterial authority of the scriptures. Our lives are submitted to the word of God and the ways of God as they are expressed in the word of God. And then secondly, the sola fide. There are so many who desperately need to be gripped by the fact that your trust in Christ is sufficient to give you acceptance and that you don't have to come limping and wondering how God feels about you. For the most part, thinking that he lives with a low-grade sense of being ticked off with you because he doesn't. And that should provoke in us thanksgiving and worship. So why don't we stand to our feet this morning and express some of that thanksgiving and worship back to him. Would you join us? Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.